This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good evening, Steve-O. Eight o'clock on a Friday. What are we doing? Living the dream, buddy. Doesn't get any better. Talk is sheep. There's no rest for talk is sheep. So uh, episode 36. Um, so very topical, right? We've been seeing all the wildfires across the landscape in BC. Tragically, we lost the town of Lytton. There was two fatalities that we're aware of. And the, basically the entire town is yeah. was lost to wildfire. Um, and just a, a, a serious tragedy and just so heartbreaking. Yeah, our condolences to the the band and all the affected members, their friends, families, and just you, you, you see it on the news. Like two days earlier, the mayor of Lytton and the, the mayor of Lillooet were bantering back and forth about holding the, the title of the hottest uh, place in Canada. And then just days later, a, a tragedy like this tears through and just devastates uh, a community that's always been so good to the Sheep Society as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of the heart of sheep country there for sure. There's no question about it. And, you know, when that happened, you reached out to me right away and said, we got to do something around wildfire. And and right away, Chris is like, hey, John Davies, he's mm-hmm. he's our guy. He's our fire guy. He's our fire guy. So let's get John on. Um, so this is a very topical episode. And I really appreciate you thinking of that and bringing it up and because it's so fitting. Um, and John really kind of... Uh, you know, he, he gets a little emotional on this this podcast. You kind of drew it out of him. You know, you started <laughs> talking about, you know, how Lytton was preventable. It could have, you know, had uh, had we, we you know, had we had the, the will or the ability to do it, if the government allowed us to do it, we could have made a difference in Lytton and, and these other communities that are being affected by wildfires. So um, John is uh, obviously very intimate about wildfire and, you know, he, he's a wildfire specialist and, and prevention is his thing, right? And he he, he can make that difference. So yeah. it's really, it's very cool to hear him talk about it and his perspective. And, um, you know, we do talk about the conservation aspect as well, but a lot of it really is focused on, you know, wildfire prevention in mm-hmm. in communities, right? Yeah, 30 years of experience on the ground, right? And you, you can't beat that. And when I when I worked for the Wildfire Service, one of the things that grabbed my attention was the rap attack. And to learn that he was part of it, I was like, holy crap, like, that's pretty freaking cool. And he gets a little bit more into what rap attack is for those that don't know in, in the uh, episode. So yeah, it's 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 a sobering episode. Uh, it's, a, it's a great listen. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed everything he had to say. Well, and one takeaway that was... 
very poignant to me was the importance of First Nations and G2G and mm. um, getting work done on the ground for conservation, like um, getting prescribed fire done. Um, you know, we've been very lucky to partner with ONA, the Okanagan Nation Alliance. Uh, Kaylin Glasser has been fantastic. Um, and, you know, she asked us if if we would like to be part of a, a, a controlled burn with that they were doing uh, recently. And, and we were lucky enough to be to support uh, ONA on that. And uh, and they're getting great work done for wild sheep you know, and other species, too. Right. They, you know, all these species mm. are benefiting from prescribed burns. And, uh, you know, we're seeing First Nations getting it done and we're not seeing it anywhere else. So. Um, you know, this G to G process, um, you know, there, uh, you know, you, it's controversial, controversial at times, right? But th- there's a case where conservation and, and wildlife are winning because of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those that don't know, G to D, G to G is government to government negotiations. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, that, that burn a couple of years ago was Crater Mountain. I think it was that the, there was some new technology, wasn't it? About they're they're dropping like little foil balls or something. Fireballs, yeah. Fireballs, exactly. yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that in the pictures and just the the the, the look of uh, of every on the face of everybody that was participating it was almost a a sigh of relief of finally this is getting burnt and we're controlling it type thing and because. Is, is we're seeing around the province right now and, and some, some spots across Canada and we know California and Australia, they all get hit, right? It's, it's fire is going to happen. And if, if we manage it properly, it doesn't have to be anywhere near as devastating as it is right now to communities. Yeah. Well said. Um, okay. Before we go off the episode here, a couple things, we've got two new raffles out. Um, mm-hmm. We've got a Jurassic classic uh, raffle, um, it's fully donated by, uh, Sacco rifles and Steiner scopes. Uh, they, they've donated a, uh, Sacco 85 Finlight, absolute beautiful rifle, mm-hmm. uh, topped with a Steiner scope. Um, I think it's around six grand is MSRP on it. Um, and our goal is to sell it out. Um, we have the opportunity to make $20,000 on that raffle and every penny is going to go on the ground in the Fraser river, um, uh, the Fraser River project that it's those big horns that we've been working on the last two years, a hundred thousand dollars of our money's gone there so far. And last night at our board of directors meeting, I think we approved sixty thousand dollars for that. So this is a flagship project for the Wild Sheep Society BC. It's a flagship project for Wild Sheep in BC. Um, the, the Fraser River big horns have dropped off dramatically in the 90s due to a disease event and they've never recovered and this is the steps that are going to get us to that next level that we can see those numbers starting to come back we've actually seen um some very early evidence of of great success in that in that um in that fraser river project so we're really uh, i think the budget for this coming year is one hundred eighty thousand dollars. it's a big chunk Mm-hmm. Like I said, Wild Sheep's putting sixty grand in, and we've got a bunch of funding partners that are going to be twenty thousand from that rifle. So you can see the importance of it, right? It's really critical. Um, and you know, if if you want to get a chance to win a, a sweet rifle, okay, yeah, that's part of it. But really, like, look what you're doing for wildlife and conservation of wild sheep in British Columbia when you're supporting that raffle, right? Yeah, and tickets are only twenty five bucks. Like a cheap ass like me can can grab a couple, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we just launched another one. It's a very, very cool raffle. Um, it's uh, do you know? Do you want to explain it? Because I, I don't think I'm going to do a very good job. Um, <laughs> it, what, what it is? It's a trailer, which it's doesn't a, sound great. It's a trailer. It's 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 a Gen two doghouse with Badlands series digital camo roughneck edition tent. Basically, it's a tent trailer that has toolbox. Uh, 
you name it, cooktop lights, interior lights, slide out kitchen, stove, uh, 65 liter water tank. Uh, there's a pump, tap, sink. It's six foot by eight foot awning. You name it. Everything is there. This is something that any vehicle can tow behind it. It's light enough and it'll go anywhere. It's it's not one of these ones that you borrow from your parents and you're afraid to take down an FSR. This thing is going to pass your vehicle down the FSR and be set up waiting for you type deal, right? It's it's kick-ass setup. Yeah, it's it's super cool. And it, yeah, it's just a tiny little unit. And then you set it up and you get to sleep on top. And uh, it's just, uh, I'd love to have one. They're worth 10 grand. Uh, Kit Distributors uh, donated this. Uh, one of our directors, Greg Rensmeg, was worked hard on that donation. And they they donated uh, uh, a good portion of that to us. And uh, again, you know, that's going to generate some really solid revenue for wild sheep in British Columbia. And it's a super cool prize package. So check oh, it I, out. I, well, I got a picture of it. It looks so awesome. Like it's, it's I, I'm going to buy a ticket for this thing. It literally went live uh, half an hour ago. So yeah. it's uh, we're recording this a Friday, then July 9th, uh, and just going on sale. And I think this is going to sell pretty fast because this is kind of uh, we're seeing that with these, the you know these uh, kind of these new retro um, or these new um, camping systems or these sleeping systems that you know the ones that mount on top of your truck or whatever. They're they're super popular, right? They're kind of you know um, a portable trailer if you will and yeah this is going to be super cool i think it'll sell pretty quick so uh yeah anyway i'm pretty stoked about it unfortunately i can't buy any tickets because i'm uh i was involved with the application process but hopefully some somebody i know <laughs> wins it so i can go check it out so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I promise i'll let you borrow it yeah right on um okay so yeah two new raffles are out um and so with that, we're going to go off to episode 36. We've got John Davies. He's the fire guy. He's he's our fire guy. He does a ton of work for the Wild Sheep Society BC. Monarch gold member. Great supporter. You're going to hear John, what he believes. He's not a hunter, He's but he cares about wildlife. He cares about conservation. He goes to our shows. He has a good time. He spends a lot of money there. Um, and he's just a great supporter just and a, and a really good dude. Um, and you, and you can hear it, you know, talking to John, you can just tell he's a solid dude. He was drinking a beer while we were chatting with him on the, on this, uh, podcast. So, um, you're going to enjoy the show, uh, John Davies. And, uh, I think the name of his company is frontline operations. Um, and, uh, just a great support of the wild sheep society, BC episode 36. Across Canada and throughout the world. If you come across a campfire in the woods on a mountaintop or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Good evening, John Davies. How's things going from the interior? Uh, very well. Very well, thanks. You guys? It's uh, not 4,000 degrees up here right now, but uh, I'm sure that could change in an instant. <laughs> okay, so to set the stage, we've postponed things an hour because we got a, a, a injured dog or a, a, a surgery dog uh, in the background. So we might hear some barking and some clanging and thrashing, and that's just uh, that's just the dog doing his thing. So uh, dog's doing well, though, from surgery, I guess. Hey, John? Uh, well, he's totally drugged out right now, so it's just like, uh, yeah. Well, hopefully this lasts for the whole hour, and and uh, it's quiet. <laughs> but seem to be seem to be successful. So, 
right on. So, hey, John, thanks a lot for coming on uh, Talk of Sheep. Um, and it's really topical we have you on here. We've got all these wildfires burning across the, you know, all across Western uh, North America, really. Um, it's been a bad year for fire. We've seen what's gone on in uh, the interior. And um, so lots to talk about today. Very topical. But uh, before we jump into that, I guess, if you don't mind, John, let's talk a little bit about you. Let's talk about your, you know, where you came from, uh, how you became the fire guy, and uh, and just kind of go through your your chronology of, of where you come from. For sure. Yep, uh, absolutely. Um, first of all, I'll acknowledge that uh, I'm living in Silk Territory in, uh, in Vernon. Uh, I've been here since uh, 2008, uh, where I've been running my consulting firm. Uh, I started back in the world of fire in 1993 when I started fighting forest fires for the government. I uh, managed to get onto their uh, helicopter repel crew, a rap attack out of Salmon Arm. And I spent 10 seasons there, uh, five or six of them on the ground. The last, uh, the remaining years were, were uh, in the helicopter, kicking people out instead of jumping out myself. And uh that uh, I left in 2002 to pursue my registered professional forester accreditation. And so I ended up in the Charlottes uh, in the summer of 2003, uh, where I watched the television every morning, the weatherman show uh, the rest of BC burning down while this bank of clouds repeatedly hammered uh, Haida Gwaii with, uh, with rain. And I was in uh, rain gear all summer while all my buddies were out fighting the worst fire season ever. And uh, uh, right after that, they did the Filman Report, uh, which was the big review that resulted in uh, the government being told that they should be doing uh, uh, more wildfire management rather than just response. And that included uh, fuel management, prescribed burning, uh, and that type of, type of work. And so it was very serendipitous that I had just became registered as a registered professional forester. I had... Uh, just finished 10 years with the government fighting fire. So I had a lot of operational fire experience and suddenly there was an interest in people that knew about fire and forestry. And so I started a consulting firm and I was doing prescribed burning uh, just north of uh, Pemberton, up the south end of Anderson Lake in Darcy, uh, Nequaqua territory and working with the band. And we were, uh, we were burning in spotted owl habitat. So it was a way to uh, restore a more open Douglas fir, ponderosa pine type stand, uh, leaving behind big trees for unglets and spotted owls and still get some timber out and also to get fire back on the landscape. And from that, I stemmed into doing uh, fuel management work to protect communities. And I end up doing a lot of work for BC Parks in the Okanagan. And I decided uh, in 2008 that uh, no one else is really doing this up in the Okanagan, so I would move up here. So I moved my business up, and then the recession hit. So my timing was perfect. And uh, so I, I managed to survive through that. And, and then I ended up, uh, uh, because of my background and experience, I was able to secure most of the local governments in the Okanagan as clients. And so since 2008, I've been uh, working in the Okanagan here on uh, community protection. So everything from uh, developing community wildfire protection plans that drive this type of uh, community protection work to fuel management prescriptions that basically say what you're going to do and how you're going to do it to, to remove these trees to reduce fire behavior and then monitoring and implementing the operations. 
And also included that was uh, other work for parks um, and uh, local biologists on re uh, ecosystem restoration type work. So trying to put the uh, ecosystems back to what they were pre-settlement um, as if fire was playing a natural role. And uh, so that's been it. I, I, I did, uh, I've worked up in the territories, both of them. Uh, I've worked pretty much all over BC for forestry and, and fire, a little bit in Alberta. And I spent three months in Indonesia uh, in 2016 doing some work there. And uh, then I got seduced by the Wild Sheep Society of BC about 2017 and uh, started uh, started started working with you guys. So uh, it's it's been a it's been a really good career so far. I feel like I still got some fire in my belly and uh, I want to make some uh, differences and disrupt and change. So uh, I'm 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 pretty excited about where where things are going. Right on, John. That's uh, really cool. Um, such a cool career. So, um, before we, there's a whole bunch of things there that I want to talk about, but I think you said, was it 2003 you started out, um, in your career? Is that, you've been doing this for 30 years. Is that right? So I started my consulting career in 2014 or sorry, 2004. That's when I, uh, incorporated my company and started basically pimping myself out for, uh, for work, eating what I kill. So yeah, I've been, uh, 17, 17 years, uh, wow. self-employed. And there wasn't, this sector didn't really exist before, uh, before 2004. So, you know, those of us that have been around then have helped, helped build it, build this out. And, um, so it was, it was quite different back then. It was a bit of the wild west. You, you basically told everyone what to do. No one, no one really had any, there were no guidelines. So we just kind of made stuff up. Sounds like being a pilot, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. I, what, what I meant to say was 93. So you've been doing this in 93. So you're coming up on 30 years in the business of wildfire. Um, so, uh, you were, were you jumping a helicopters? Did you say, or you were, I know you're a helicopter tech, so you were getting guys to jump out. You were, you were on board the airplane or the helicopter kicking them out. Is that right? Yeah. So, so, uh, rap attack is a, a helicopter rappel crew and, okay. uh, they were developed to access, uh, fires with little to no access. So you basically, Whenever a fire is discovered, you fly over it, you hover, you drop a line down in the ground, you re three, three people rappel down, a couple of cargo bags uh, rappel down or get uh, deployed as well. And then uh, the helicopter has a belly tank underneath it that holds about 300 gallons, so about five bathtubs worth of water. And they can attach a hose that pump that down to the ground into a bladder bag that we set up. And then the helicopter leaves and we're there all alone and hand tools and a uh, little bit of water and couple cans of peaches and you stay there until the fire's out or call in resources. So if it was a small fire and we could get it out in 24 hours, we would, we would just do that. Uh, if it was a bigger fire, we might call in another crew or we may just build a helipad so that uh, helicopter or hover exit crews could, could, could land and come in and help. So uh, it was, it was a, it was a specialized way to get to a fire, but once you're on the ground, you were just a firefighter. Um, there was no other difference other than you had a little less gear and no access. Yeah. When I, when I worked for the wildfire service in the office there, I got to see some of the videos and the, the, the pictures of the rap attack teams and just, it's really incredible and got my attention. So I, I can visualize what you're saying. I, I've seen the, the pictures. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. And, you know, it's been around a long time and, and, you know, out of it stemmed Paratac out of the North, right? So they, they saw another way of, 
trying to get to fires that required a longer distance um, that a helicopter could travel and maybe to an area that didn't have an airport where, you know, planes, bigger planes could land. So uh, it, it was just a, you know, it was just a tool in the, in the toolbox. Very cool. So stark contrast to what you're doing today, obviously today you're, you know, you, there's no doubt the work you're doing is, has a lot more impact on the ecosystem and, and uh, in fire management, uh, obviously being a manager and, uh, but that, that, that had to be the good old days where you got some pretty cool memories that, you know, that must've been just a blast doing that kind of work. Hey, John. It was, it was pretty cool, you know, for a, a, a young, a very young, immature 23 year old boy coming out of this base of, you know, full of 40 type A people and you're a type A yourself and you think you know something and uh, you know, full of piss and vinegar to, to end up just being crushed in, you know, in a, in a boot, military boot camp style uh, training and, and a training regime, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was very eye-opening. It was kind of like a break them down, build them up, um, get rid of the egos, and then, you know, fill the, fill the jarhead with knowledge. Um, it, 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 it was the 90s, so it was very different back then than, than it is now. I mean, I saw an evolution within my decade there of, you know, more women on base and, and more equality and, and almost a 50-50 par between men and women on the base. Whereas when I started, there was a one, uh, I saw attitudes change, um, you know, innovation. So it was, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty neat, uh, to see all that. And then just to see the country, like, you know, because we were going to inaccessible fires, we were generally within the top third of a mountain in the middle of nowhere, like no, no roads. And, you know, we would either hike up to the Alpine, uh, to get, to get picked up after a fire because we had no way of getting out. Or we had spent hours walking down to the side of a lake or a forest service road to, to get picked up. Um, occasionally, we'd build a helipad uh, to get out. Eventually, we ended up uh, becoming certified with uh, Transport Canada as a, a, a hoist on the machine. So we were able to hoist ourselves up um, and, and other equipment down. And then that led to doing many of acts for injured firefighters and others and rescue service. So... Um, it was it was a pretty cool way to spend my my uh, my twenties. It was a bit uh, it was a bit like uh, Never Never Land with Peter Pan. I, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was tough to leave, but I had this great opportunity to go and do prescribed burning type work, and and I I knew the writing was on the wall. There was a woman involved that didn't want me there anymore. So you know there were a lot of there were a lot of pulls out of the uh, out of the program. Um, I. I look back now and I maybe, maybe I, maybe I spent a little, you know, a couple of years too many there, but uh, it all worked out timing wise that I ended up being a registered professional forester right when the government started throwing money out to do the type of work I was uh, able to, to figure out. So, and then, you know, it, it's, it's because of, you know, my time with the, the wildfire service and everything I learned there that I'm able to do what I do now. Right on John. So, um, there's a couple of things I just want some clarity on that. And this is kind of mostly for me, but when we started working with you in 2017, I think it was 2016, 17, um, a lot of the stuff was, um, we seen Davies wildfire services, um, as kind of the proponent or the, or the, and then there's this frontline operations group. So are both these your companies or how does that work? What, what are the, what's the tie in? And also there's, uh, I've seen fire smart too. So can you explain that a little bit to us, what that means? 
Yeah, absolutely. So when I when I started my company in twenty in two thousand four, uh, it was actually called Permanent Prescribed Fire Services because that's what we were doing. And then when the government threw all this money out for fuel management, I knew that I had to expand it beyond just doing prescribed burning. And so I changed the company name to Davies Wildfire Management, and I operate under that for for all these years. And then uh, I got. It was kind of just myself, and whenever I needed help, I might bring someone else on. And, and in 2017, I got really busy. 2016, it started to get really busy. And in 2017, I was just absolutely swamped. I ended up doing all the flood management work in the Okanagan. And I had a whole bunch of uh, just fire-related stuff where I needed help. And I ended up getting introduced to uh, uh, my business partner, Andy Lowe, uh, who was also trying – he was trying to get out of the for, uh, wildfire service. And so – uh, we chatted and we ended up coming to terms and he came and joined me. And, uh, the idea was that, you know, if it all worked out that, you know, we would change the name to something that wasn't just, you know, me. And, uh, so that's what we ended up doing in 2019. We changed the company name to frontline operations group. And, uh, we liked the name because one, we we both came from the front lines. Um, it's where we like to be, uh, like getting, getting shit done. Um, explicit language. Getting stuff done, and uh, and then operations is just our background, right? Like we we have decades and decades of operational fire experience. Like I I was ninety three to two thousand two, and then I had contract crews until twenty seventeen. My last fire I was on was the Elephant Hill, uh, and that was twenty five years of of spending time on the fire line. So we were both very operationally experienced and. And then we like the idea of group because we, we didn't really see ourselves as bosses or more so as just as uh, trying to lead a group of people to, to achieve some, some, uh, uh, some objectives. So that's kind of where the, the name came from. And, and it's, it, it was doing all the same stuff that Davies Wildfire Management was. Right on. Okay. So John, you know, we've got this situation in BC now we've seen the lit and fire. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of issues over the years, uh, LA or the, sorry, California has been horrendous the last few years. Um, you know, I want to get into the conservation aspect. Absolutely for sure. But let's just talk about it holistically in the wildfire issues and some of the issues, um, and, and what needs to be done differently to manage fire in, in, you know, all across you know, the, the West here really, but, uh, you know, in BC, what do you see that we need to change to, you know, a, a better approach, I guess. Well, this is only an hour long podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's very, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, I'm deeply saddened and, and, and similarly disappointed in what's happened in, in Lytton. It's, you know, we lost a town and, you know, but at least two people that we know of are dead. Right. And, and it's, it's, we, we know why, we know why buildings burn down. We know how to not have them burn down. We know how to build them. So they want to burn down. We know how to protect communities. Um, yeah. You know, stuff happens and things go wrong and, and, and whatnot, but uh, it's, it's, you know, we, we, we know all the preventive means and, and yet, you know, the government just kind of has a very dripping faucet of funding for preventative work. They'll throw all the money in the world out of response, and, and absolutely, you know, when when it's hitting the fan, you can't have money being a uh, a factor. You need to get out there. But 
you know, we spent, we've spent what, you know, billions of dollars just in the last, you know, 2017, 2018. And, and now this year's, you know, I, I think for all intents and purposes, it's going to be another record year or has the potential to be, if we even just put, you know, $1 billion into prevention and, and, and let the money flow and we addressed the, 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 the issue at the scale that it exists, which is landscape wise, you know, we, we would just be so much further ahead. Um, but, you know, we, again, we just have this little dripping faucet of funding to do prevention work. And then we have all, you know, when they're, when they're, when they're in the response mode, everything's off the table as far as the rules, just go put the fire out. But when we go back into that prevention, we've got to follow all those rules. And so everything moves slower. And when the funding isn't there either, that just slows things down further. So that's a big part of it. And, you know, we, we, uh, We've done. A, we spent a lot of years convincing the public that fire was bad, you know, right from right from Smokey and Bear in the fifties, mm-hmm. and 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 we have to reverse that. And I think that chunk of that responsibility falls on the, the same agency that made people think fire was bad, um, and have a much more aggressive uh, program for promoting the good side of fire. You know, there is no more. There is no more living without smoke. We, we either are going to get it how we don't want it in, in incredible quantities in bad summers, or we can do it under some uh, good conditions where it's short-lived in, in the shoulder seasons, the spring and the fall, uh, for prevention purposes. Mm-hmm. So, so, John, I, there's two issues that I want to jump on there. I guess, first of all, you know, what is this preventative stuff? So I guess, uh, fire breaks, like, you know, you know, these smaller controlled burns that are going to create a fire break. Uh, is that what you're talking about? Like what sort of, so that's the first thing I want to address. And then the other side is that is, you know, these restrictions that I guess, presumably the government puts on us that says, Oh, you can't burn, you can't do this. Um, is it a lot of it air quality issues? Um, like I know there's, you know, being involved with the society, I've seen a lot of this stuff where there's all these different factors, there's moisture, um, criteria and there's, uh, you know, weather conditions and all that stuff. So if you could jump into those two issues for us and just kind of, you know, w- what should we be doing preventative wise um, to, to stop these big fires from taking out towns like Lytton? Yeah. So you're right. The, the, the prevention stuff has to do with managing fuel loading in and around communities within the wildland urban interface, which is defined as where structures or other values meet forest or grassland ecosystems. So pretty much everywhere in BC, where, where uh, if, if you have homes next to grassland or forest, that's your, that's your uh, interface. And that's the area that's the highest priority to treat to try and protect communities. But for so many years, we have, we have done it at a fire smart distance, which is 100 meters. And, and that comes from Fire Smart Canada. And that was really just a guideline of like, this is the minimum you need to do. And so that's all we've done is the minimum. And it wasn't until 2017 when Forest Ecosystem or Forest uh, Ecosystem Society of BC came out with a whole bunch of money um, and started to allow for landscape level treatments, so large scale fuel breaks. So starting to and, and and the other thing the thing to consider is that you know these fuel management treatments like thinning, pruning, uh, burning. Um, all of that are really just fire surrogates. So it's all stuff that fire would have done naturally pre-colonial settlement. Um, you know, First Nations used it. 
Um, lightning itself, right? It would have just, our ecosystems developed with fire. They either need it for reproductive purposes or to um, remove uh, competition. And so all the ecosystems in BC at some point would have experienced a level, some type of disturbance. And for the most part, it was, it was fire. So when we go and do these treatments, all we're doing is, is implementing a surrogate to fire. And what we need to do is get back to using fire on the landscape. And that, that means both intentional ignition through prescribed burnings that are carefully planned and also fire management. So those opportunities exist where we can allow a natural, a, a natural wildfire. So something that's caused by lightning and some people might argue, you know, even a human caused fire could be allowed to burn if it was safe to do so that we manage those fires to do what they're supposed to do on the landscape. That requires a lot of pre-planning and a lot of risk management. And um, we live in a risk adverse world, particularly with government. And so that's very difficult to do. So that's kind of where fire breaks uh, and fuel, fuel, fuel breaks come from. <clears throat> to answer your other question as far as restrictions, air quality is a big one. You know, if we're gonna try and burn in the interface, we're in and around homes, we're in and around communities that have hospitals and seniors' homes. Smoke is obviously, we know, bad, uh, has some bad elements to it, especially for, you know, those that have uh, immune compromised health issues. So large periods of, of uh, uh, smoke with the associated particulates uh, can be detrimental to people's health. So air quality, of course, is something we have to consider, but we've gone so far to these uh, safe side or risk adverse side of that is it's difficult to do anything with prescribed burning in and around communities where it needs to happen. And, and, you know, Lytton, Lytton was surrounded by grass, you know, it was old buildings, some of them dating back to gold rush days. Uh, they were, they were, that town was built before FireSmart was even a concept. So you had, you had buildings that were not, that were susceptible to ignition and they were surrounded by grassy, flashy fuels. Uh, there was a major highway running through, there was a railway running through, so you have two potential key ignition sources. Um, and then and then you've got the winds of the Fraser, Fraser Canyon, right? They're huge and it's always, almost always at some point, the hottest point in BC, if not Canada. So you've got this, this perfect storm brewing and, and we know every year, Lytton and Lillooet are, are right up there with susceptibility to fire. So um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know all the details and we might not for, uh, for a while, but you know, it, it, it wasn't a surprise. It's not a surprise at how much of a risk exists in the Fraser Canyon. And they're not the only communities. I mean, you can go from Ashcroft down to Boston Bar and, and find similar conditions, just varying degrees of grassland and, and forest. In, in that breath, uh, yeah, Lytton and Lillooet, for somebody who's seen it like myself, that's not a surprise it took off. The one that was a surprise to me, but might not be to somebody like yourself who knows the the beast a little better, is, is Fort McMurray. Like, when that took off a couple of years ago, uh, to me, that's northern Alberta, that's cold, that's snowy. What where, what What was the difference there, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I think if I remember, I was in Indonesia when that was going on, so I was following everything, you know, 18 hours behind. And, and uh, um, if I remember correctly, it, it, it wasn't 
given the attention it needed early on when it was small and it was allowed to build up, the boreal forest is just fuel from ground to crown. Uh, it's tight, dense stands. Um, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if it was a beetle kill area, so it would have had a lot of fuel in the ground. And I think it just had some big winds behind it. So, you know, fire always follows the fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think it was a pretty consistent fuel source up there and, and had the winds behind it. And then it just, once a fire gets chugging, like, man, it's, it's tough to do anything with it, especially when it gets into the crown and, and, mm -hmm. and then when it starts to spot. So I, I think, you know, the Fort McMurray was buried deep in the boreal forest surrounded by trees that people love to live next to. And it didn't, as far as I know, really have any preventative measures done. So, okay. um, you know, we've, we've seen, I mean, you're up north, Steve, you, you, you yeah. see these fires, Prince George North all the time. I mean, those, again, those forests were developed to burn so that they could regenerate. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's no, um, yeah, fire's not foreign to them. Oh, cool. Awesome. So John, have you seen an evolution? Uh, I think you said it was 1617 that, um, you mentioned there was a, uh, there was more money on the available for preventative fire. Um, or prevention, I guess, really. So have you seen an evolution? And, you know, we're seeing these things like, you know, we see a, a town like Lytton Lost, we see in California, you know, um, and, you know, things that are elevated at the national level, the president's weighing in on stuff like that. Um, has public sentiment changed? Has uh, government's approach to it changed? Have you seen an evolution since you've been involved in the kind of in the prescription business, I guess? Uh, definitely, definitely. So as far as the funding, right, like the, because the government put this money on the table. They didn't want it getting lost every fiscal year end and then trying to find it again. So they just put a whole bunch of money into the union of BC municipalities where it could sit. It wasn't tied to fiscal year end and all the local governments could go and apply for grants, but they were, uh, they were capped at how much they could apply for. So a place like say uh, uh, Prince George, which is just buried in the trees has trees like not only around it, but like the whole community just has trees throughout it, like big stands of it. They could apply for the same amount of money as, uh, you know, Falkland in between Camelos and Monty Lake, right? They both qualify for the same amount of funding, which doesn't make any sense. Um, so, you know, and then the same for some place like Whistler or Kelowna, you know, Vancouver, they all would be able to receive the same amount of money. So there was, there was no real, uh, didn't, that, that part didn't make sense. And, and over the time, uh, you were always struggling to get to get funding to, to deal with it. You're always hitting that cap. And then in 2017, that uh, FESBC came out and there was no cap on what you could apply for. So some organizations were getting like a million dollars. Right? When you think that some of these treatments can cost five to ten thousand dollars a hectare, depending on slope and density and aspect and access and all of that, you can eat through one hundred thousand dollars you know, in, in 20 hectares or less. So when you start trying to, to, when you start thinking about trying to fix the problem out there at 20 hectares at a time, you know, I'll be retired before we get anywhere near that. And, and so when FEST came out and suddenly you could get half a million dollars to actually address a problem properly, it really changed the game. And, uh, and then, and now it's kind of gone back because FEST is disappearing for a variety of uh, political wildfire service reasons. Um, the 
where where before local governments were able to apply for funding to address risk on crown land, uh, so unceded territory outside of municipalities, uh, that has now moved over to forest districts. So they manage all that now, which is good because they're the land managers anyways. And uh, they can deal with other values on the landscape besides just a reduction in fuel for fire behavior purposes, which is important when you start getting into stuff like habitat enhancement type work. Um, so, so yeah, there, uh, there's been that kind of pro- progression or evolution over time where it's steadily gotten better, but only like incrementally. And then 2017, the gates just opened up. And then in 2019, they, they kind of shut it down again when uh, there wasn't any support from FEST from the wildfire service and the money got pushed over to local governments where, or sorry, over to uh, forest districts where the wildfire service could still have some say in what goes on. So that's, you know, there's, there's there was a peak and now it's come back down and we're, we're back to banging our heads against the wall to get rid of the headache. Okay, so John, we talk about uh, prescription and just, I guess, for our listeners, and I didn't know this, Chris educated me on that. My understanding of prescription is is the work you're doing. You're writing uh, basically a burn plan. You're coming up with the concept. You're prescribing the burn. You're not doing the burn. That's that's the paperwork to get us there, right? Is it, Am I correct in that statement? Pretty much, yeah. So anytime you want to cut a tree down on, on, on unseated land, on crown land, you have to have permission from the government uh, because they – they manage the trees on behalf of, of the public of BC. And in order to do that, you have to meet all the regulations and, and whatnot in the, in the, uh, in the uh, a variety of acts. So you have to not hurt the dirt, not hurt the water, don't hurt the wildlife, don't hurt the air, and explain how you're going to net potentially uh, regenerate the site. Uh, but otherwise, you have to tell them how you're going to get those trees out of there or destroy them with minimal impact on all the other values that are out there. And so that document is the practice of forestry. And that can only be done by foresters, which is why we have a right to title and practice. We sign and seal something, and then we become responsible for it. And if we are negligent, if we make a mistake, that's one thing, but if we're negligent, then that is a much bigger issue. So all the, all the action regulations have to be followed when we develop that. When we go to want to burn something, we have to have a document, a prescription that says that this area needs to be burned or should be burned or can be burned. And the burn plan is a separate document and it gets reviewed by the wildfire service um, that basically gives you authority to, uh, they, they agree with what's in the burn plan. But the authority to burn actually comes from the land manager, which is at the forest district. So, as long as you can do a burn plan, it's acceptable. It meets all their criteria. It really comes down to the forest district manager or uh, his or her designate that um, lets you do the burn. Okay. So now would you say like with these prescriptions and, and you talked about uh, fire present prevention tactics, basically you talked about fire itself. Like, you, you know, that's the good one. That's the one you want to do, but you talked about, you know, slashing and, and removing trees and that sort of stuff. Um, I've seen since we've been involved with you, you've been, you've done a ton of work for us and quite often we're stymied, right? We're not getting the approval for the burn. So, um, would you say the majority of the work that you're doing is like, uh, and we did quite a bit of work with you, um, with slashing projects in the, uh, in the Okanagan and stuff like that. Is that the majority of the stuff that you're getting approvals for, or are you guys getting some burns off? Like how often does that occur for you guys? 
so, so the second question, as far as the burns, I mean, we've we've got one burn done with Pantith and Indian Band, um, which uh, was more uh, a test in trying to get the government to work with the bands to just do a burn that Wildfire Service wasn't in charge of. So while it didn't have any benefit to sheep because it wasn't in sheep territory or, or sheep habitat, uh, it was a, a deer winter range, it, it, it helped create a model where the government could work with uh, the band. So there was that government-to-government -government interaction, which they both want. There was reconciliation, like actually doing reconciliation. And that contributed to the Crater Mountain burn um, because we were able to get the district, the forest district, the wildfire service, and the Okanagan Nation Alliance working together to go and do uh, this burning on Crater Mountain, which has happened a couple times over sort of the last couple of years. So that's really been the only burn that's happened in, in the Okanagan. Um, you know, and, and a big part of that happened, uh, well, I, I'm going to say it all happened because of the involvement of First Nations basically saying we're going to go burn. And that, you know, a, a lot of their ability to do that was – you know, support from the society, uh, the sheep society, um, that, that, yeah, gave them some funding to, to do it and, and support and some rationale. Um, so there was a, it was a big part to getting that going. And then, so, and then everything else we've done, all the treatment wise, you know, that's all just been thinning and pile and burn or, or other type of removal. So it's very minimal burning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, that's fantastic. The, you know, uh, ONA has done a great job with regards to, you know, moving that, that burn project forward that I think there was the two of them that they did. And, uh, you know, we we're very fortunate to be part of that. Um, it was, it was pretty cool that they, they allowed us to, uh, you know, form some of the, the funding partnership and that, and, uh, and yeah, so, you know, you can see those, the importance of that first nation relationship that they're actually getting work done, the work mm -hmm. that we want to do. So, um, it's, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity. It's great that the, uh, the Canadian government's recognizing that through the GDG process that we can actually get some good work done for conservation. Um, so it's, you know, we're really excited about, uh, uh, the work that Kaylin has done there with ONA. So, um, yeah, really exciting and very cool to be part of it. So moving forward, um, uh, do you see burns on crown land? Do you see any of that on government territory or is it going to be only on, you know, with the uh, First Nation G to G, G stuff moving forward, what do you? What's your feel feeling there, John? I feel like the only way that we're going to get any burning done is if it's driven by First Nations. Yeah. And part of that is because the Wildfire Service doesn't think that uh, the expertise or these skills exist outside of the Wildfire Service to do wildfire management, to to do prescribed burning. You know, even though many of us. Um, were past employees and learned, you know, they trained us up and they were often the ones called back in to go and light up as ignition specialists in the fire season. Um, they don't, they don't, they won't recognize or provide any training to any out, out of service uh, personnel. And, and so they don't recognize us, us as burn bosses. Um, they're going to have a hard time having that same attitude to first nations to saying, you don't know how to burn because they were doing it long before mm -hmm. we were. And while, while there's a difference between uh, traditional use burning and Western science burning, as far as, you know, what goes into planning and, and whatnot and what's required, the outcome is still the same. And I think that there's an opportunity where uh, 
people like myself and my colleagues can provide the support to First Nations on the Western science side and do the paperwork that needs to be done, and then stand behind the bands and provide support and and or mentorship to meet uh, the obligations like the West, the, the regulations, the act of legalities within that burn plan to help them uh, avoid uh, doing anything uh, that would be that would contravene those those uh, those plans. But, you know, the, the bands, they always they always burnt early in the season. So, you know, the impacts were low. They were I, I learned something uh, from from Pierre Kruger, who's with the uh, Penticton India Band a couple of years ago when we were chatting about this stuff. He said that they would go out in February or March as the snow level was decreasing and burn off the grass. And I was like, well, how do you do that with snow underneath? He said, oh, no, we just burn off the top. So they would just go through and burn off the top with torches. And then once the snow had melted, they would go and burn, you know, half as much grass because they'd already gotten rid of half. And, and that's how they would control the burn. So they didn't have to worry about something uh, or, or worry less about something getting away. Now, of course, if something got away, they, they obviously had a lot less values because for the most part, they were living valley bottom and everything would go up the slope and away. And, but, you know, they certainly knew, they certainly knew what they were doing. Um, all of that changes, of course, when you start throwing uh, values like, you know, structures and power lines and roads and railway tracks and schools and all that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, you have to be more concerned about something running up a hill now. But that's where I think the partnership comes in is they, they know how to light a fire and we just need to provide the support on containing that fire. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how I think we're going to be doing burning at the scale it needs to be because wildfire service doesn't have the capacity for it. They're primarily a response organization. And in the shoulder seasons when we should be burning, their training or their people are gone. Yep. So it's really difficult for them to, without them gearing up to be year-round organization of a, of a workforce, um, it's difficult that this is going to sit with them. I think they're always going to be a regulatory and technical advisor role, but it's going to come down to contractors and societies and first nations to do this burning. So just on that note, John, have you seen a change in the attitude in the public towards uh, prescribed fire? Do you see a more of an acceptance now where people are saying, yeah, we realize now we got a burner. Is it just the same thing? You know, is it just, um, is the government still reticent to do it and the public's getting on board or is it just kind of the same people don't want prescribed fire in their communities? You know, you're going to always have those naysayers that, that just are not going to want any smoke and they don't understand mm-hmm. it. And, and, you know, you're going to get that. And then, but, but I, I think it is getting better. Like I've seen incremental supports, particularly, you know, when I first started, there was no social media, right? So, you know, you only knew about fire from what was in the media. And now you can go on, on, on the Facebook and the, the Instagram and all these things and, and see these posts and these comments and they arrange from, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other, but you see a lot of support for, for the firefighters out there, right? People sending their thoughts and prayers and people uh, hoping for the best. And then you, you know, you see the critiques, but whenever there's burning in the shoulder season, you tend to see people supportive of it. But when you see burning as part of a response, mm-hmm. you tend to see people hypercritical about it because, uh no, no one, there's, there's much more of an uproar when a fire gets away because you lit it trying to stop another fire than yep. if you light a fire to stop another fire and it works. 
because that's just your job, right? You shouldn't mess up. But when you light a fire in the middle of fire season, uh, there are so many variables, wind changes, uh, temperature changes, inversions, like all those things. They can come into play and, and suddenly it's gone. And, and it, yep. you know, it's an art, it's a science. Um, it doesn't always work. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when it does, it's, it's you know, you're sometimes your only tool against these big fires. Um, you know, I, I saw a lot of support on Crater Mountain and those comments, people saying we should be doing more of this. I, I see more comments online about people saying there should be more burning uh, to stop these fires. And, you know, that I think that really segues into the value of fire to, to habitat enhancement uh, type work. Yeah, the other day on Facebook, uh, the Wildfire Service announced that they were going to be doing a backburn on Decca Lake. And it was pretty much a 50-50 split. You had your naysayers going, oh, remember Elephant Hill and how it got away here? And I heard this and it doesn't work. And then you had other people that were coming on and saying exactly what you did. It's our best tool, best asset we've got. If it goes well, the fire's done type thing. It's Social media is... Uh, a great thing and an evil thing in the same breath. When, when you have big fires like we're seeing right now, there there are really only three things that are going to stop it. One is the weather, uh, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, and that doesn't usually come to the fall. Uh, two is it running out of fuel, right? It runs into a lake, it runs into a clear cut, it runs into gravel roads and road systems and marshes and whatnot. Uh, or or you you burn away that fuel so it runs out of fuel because it, you know the the fire crew guys that are, you know, and, and women that are out there right now, I mean, they're working on the flanks and the back. When you have a, a rank five fire, you don't have crews up at the front. You're at the back and you're working your way around the sides, trying to pinch off the head. But the whole time you're doing that, the fire is still running, yeah. you know, somewhat, sometimes 10, 20 kilometers a day. Like, you know, 20 person crew can't catch up to that. The only way you can do it is to cut a line in front or find some other fuel free and, and be prepared to burn when the fire gets close. So, yeah, yeah it, it's again, it's an education thing. I, I think that there needs to be more more of that. And, and you know, that that type of work clearly lies within the wheelhouse of the wildfire service. They have the expertise for it. They have the equipment. They have the contracts. They, they got it all. They're the ones that should definitely be doing that. The, in the past, they've called in for outside help when they need it. Um, but that, that's definitely, you know, I'm fully supportive of, of that lying within their realm. Mm-hmm. So, John, let's pivot now to the conservation side of it. You just touched on it there that there's benefit to wildfire for um, habitat enhancement. Uh, touch on the high level stuff of why that's so good and, and and the importance of that before we get into it. Well, sure. As I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, fire is a natural part of our ecosystems, uh, particularly in you know southern interior, northern BC. Uh, once it's a little less so when you get coastal. And probably even interior, like you know, wet belt area, like around Revelstoke and whatnot. But you know, any anything anywhere where you have uh, lodgepole pine, um, uh, ponderosa pine, Douglas fir, this the boreal, those are all driven by uh, th- those ecosystems are there because of fire. Uh, sometime in the past, fire burnt, and this is what came back. And those ecosystems developed it with a cycle with fire. So a good example is lodgepole pine. Uh, they have cones that can only be opened in 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 uh, really hot temperatures, so that either has to be fire or it has to be uh, say burnt ground that warms up from the sun. And so these trees grow really close together. Uh, they become susceptible to pests and pathogens like the mountain pine beetle. They die. 
they now become susceptible to fire. These huge, large-scale fires come through, open up all the cones. Now you've got these dense, regenerating forests again that no other comp no other vegetation can compete with, and so you come back with this pure stand of lodgepole pine, and the cycle begins again. And there, you know, that that's same for other types of ecosystems as well. So, you know, the, these ecosystems have evolved with fire, and by default, so have the habitats, and therefore, so have the species that live within those habitats. Okay, so let's just jump into some of the work you've been doing for the society. Um, let's talk about some of the plans you've come up with, and and the work that's being done there on the conservation side of things, um, and. Uh, and 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 some of the thoughts of, of moving these forward, you know, we ended up um, again. It was, I think, a partnership with First Nations. Um, we did a, a bunch of slashing work in uh, the Benticton region. I think it was three years ago, but uh, you know, we haven't been able to get these fires off. Um, can you just touch a little bit on that and the work that's being done there, that, and the work that you've done, a lot of the work you've done for the society? Yeah, for sure. So, so a big part of that working with Penticton Indian Band was a result of of the partnership that. Um, uh, the, the funding from FES BC uh, to develop these large-scale fuel breaks to protect the city of Penticton that just happened to overlay uh, critical winter range for sheep habitat and had the support of the band. And so now we had the city of Penticton, we had the Penticton Indian Band, we had uh, the Sheep Society, um, and we had the regional district all interested in these projects. And so it was actually really easy to get funding for them. And so we developed the prescription saying uh, how to restore, you know, basically uh, engage in ecosystem restoration in these big breaks and uh, um, what needed to be done there. And then we had the band available to do the work. And so it was just a perfect model. Um, and we had a great media day and, and uh, we got a lot of work done on, on two big fuel breaks. Uh, one was in uh, Ellis Creek, so uh, up, up Carmi Forest Service Road. And then the other one uh, was in Penticton Creek, um, up the Grayback Forest Service Road, actually right behind uh, Mark Hubbard's place, who was more than happy to correct me on everything I was doing wrong. <laughs> um, so one thing with Mark, you just never know where you stand with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes, it, it was an interesting start uh, to that project uh, with him. Uh, I think a lot of, you know, some of that stemmed from just past history of work that had gone in there with the Forest Service and Weyerhaeuser and whatnot. But, you know, we're, we're you know, we talk frequently now. It's, it's turned into a good relationship. I've gone to, you know, help burn some of his property. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for, for his knowledge of, of the land base in the South Okanagan there. He's, you know, he's been around since dirt was invented and he knows every inch of that, that ground and where, where the animals are and yeah he's a he's a wealth of knowledge it's been a pleasure working down there with him and i still go to him for input and his thoughts on on projects because he is a it's a great resource yeah fantastic so on, on with those projects and that thinning project that was done with pentectin uh, have you seen anything like in terms of a habitat the with the enhancement have you seen uh, better recruitment. Have you noticed anything with? I, I know that you're you're worried about the the burning side and the forestry side. You're not so much about the animals, but ha anecdotally, have you seen more sheep in there? Anything? Any any increase at all? I I haven't. I would be you know that would be an interesting question for for Mark or, or the band. I, I mean, I'm just not down on the site um, enough. I know when we were developing, and I, I was surprised at how many uh, I did see down there. Um, 
because it was a, it was a pretty big area and, and uh, um, but they were all down around the homes. Right? Uh, so in and around the roads. And of course, you know, they can become exposed to domestic sheep and, you know, by doing this treatment, we were, we were trying to pull them back up into the wildlands and away from, from these homes. So I, I really feel like the trait, you know, even though we didn't get any uh, burning off in, in Ellis, uh, I really feel that what we did at the stand there um, helped. I mean, we improved sight lines. We, we got rid of some of those younger trees that were eventually going to, you know, clog up the landscape. And, um, and, and then we, you know, we basically set up for a natural fire now that can come through there and it won't destroy the stand. So it's, it's more fire absorbing. Um, we did a burn plan in there um, and we did send it off to the ministry, but it, nothing's happened. I just finished uh, another prescription in Grayback, uh, like immediately behind uh, Mark's home uh, property for, for a burn. Um, so that's gone off to the ministry now and, and hopefully we'll see a burn plan there uh, come out. So there hasn't been any burning there yet, but, you know, we did see the, uh, that fire on Christie Mountain, Mount Christie in 2020. And, you know, that ate up a lot of uh, habitat there. Um, so, you know, it's a it's matter of time before these other areas burn. Naramata is a good one as well. You know, it's kind of a corridor between Penticton Creek and Okanagan Mountain Park. Yeah, for sure. So uh, one of the things, John, can you just touch on this a little bit? Uh, it's my understanding and that when there's a fire in BC, it doesn't matter where it is, Wildfire Services' job is to go and put it out um, and, and not let it burn. So even if it's not encroaching, it's not going to cause any damage. Um, the, the, they Their job is to go and put that fire out. The One of the things that we've been advocating for and we're trying to have discussions with is let it, uh, let it burn policy. If, it, if it's prime uh, wildlife habitat, it's going to enhance the land. Um, it's doing the work that we need to do anyway, you know, and just letting fires burn. But it's our, it's my understanding that wildfire, if they can, they, they have to put it out, even if it's not uh, threatening anything. Is that correct? That's pretty much a hundred percent what they'll do. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's, that's their mandate. They're not fire managers. Um, they also, there's no plan in place for these. So, you know, fire might start, say, up, you know, in Crater Mountain or in Cathedral Park or something. Um, unless there's a plan in place that says, uh, you know, we're going to let fire burn under these conditions or it's in a it's in a uh, place where there's a let it burn policy that's been established in some plan. It's they can't just let they can't manage fire. They have to suppress it. Uh, and that becomes even particularly true, like in the interface, which I 100 percent agree with. Like if you had a fire start behind a home, you need to put that out. It's not it's not the place to mess with the fire and, and, and manage it. If you want to burn there, then do it through um, prescribed burning in, you know, in the shoulder season. OK, so uh, we make you God for a day and you can do whatever you want. B.C. government says just have at her. Um, what's what's your magic solution? How are you going to fix everything related to, you know, the, the issue habitat enhancement uh, so on, from a conservation perspective and then you know just dealing with making people's homes safer and reducing the risk of fire what what's the main you know main things that you would uh, do to change the change things with fire in BC well you know in the in the in the, the acts that govern how we manage land we we have to address things like visual quality objectives wildlife uh, timber, water, soil, all that stuff. But nowhere in there is it, 
is there anything that says that we have to uh, account for fire's role in the ecosystem? And if we if we were to be managing these forests in an integrated way where we accounted for wildfire and were able to, uh, you know, allow it to burn in certain areas, like when we do a prescription, um, that would certainly help. So I think, I think still, until we start uh, addressing and accounting for fire's natural role in our ecosystems, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. We're just going to keep this cycle of slow years with, you know, minimal preventative work uh, to these freak out years where it's just full chaos like now where we're, we're, we're chasing, we're chasing fire. So we, we need to address wildfires as part of the ecosystem in our plans and prescriptions in, in all of them. And I think, I think in some regards, make it mandatory to do prescribed burning and, and to build up that skill set outside of wildfire service. It used to be done all the time in the, you know, prior to the nineties, uh, you know, a lot of harvest companies, logging companies, they, they just went and they burnt off their, harvest units. It made it easier for planting. It was good for the soil, nutrients, all that reduced the fuel loading. Um, so, but those all, that all got kiboshed. That's, we know with government policies and fear of smoke and risk, risk adverse um, liabilities. So that would, that would be, it would be to reintroduce fire as part of forest management. So do you see that ever happening or is it going to take a, a watershed moment where we lose a, a cologne or something where we say, holy crap, we have to change our approach to it? Or do you just think it's, you know, we're just going to, we're just going to continue fighting this. It's never going to change. I think we've, you know, in the last, you know, since you know, 2017, 2018, if those weren't watershed moments, I, I don't, I don't know what it takes. I don't I know how to define a watershed moment. You know, Lytton's gone. Uh, this year is already out of control. We're not even into the heat of the season. So, you know, I think we've, I think we've had enough lessons. So we need to start learning from them, um, not just looking for more lessons. And uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think we, we, we know what we need to do. We just seem to lack the political will of the gump, the gump to do it. And uh, that's why I think a big part of what needs to be done is going to flow through First Nations because when they want to do something, uh, that involves some traditional uh, past of theirs. Uh, I don't know how the government says no to that. So I really think some some autonomy on the band's part, uh, First Nations, uh, is is really going to be the key to getting us out of this. And you can you can actually see that in some of the social media this summer is Indigenous are calling for more Indigenous burning, getting them back on the landscape, doing what they did before. You know, we're never going to fireproof our landscape. We can only make it more resilient and, and more absorbing of, of wildfire. So, and that's, those are pre-settlement conditions. You know, we, we, we're in this conundrum now because we, we, uh, we put a value of timber on the landscape. You know, it has value to the government, has value to society. We, uh, we have interface, so we have, we have to stop fire, um, we, we create our reservation system and, and, and push First Nations onto them. So we, you know, we, we don't have any anthropogenic fires anymore, uh, other than bad ones caused by cigarettes and whatnot. So, and, and then we, you know, we, so we have all these reasons where we've excluded fire from the landscape. And until we get it back on the landscape, and I, and I believe First Nations are going to be able to do that, we're, we're just going to keep going in this, this cycle that we're in where we, we get lucky some years and other years it's what, what we should be expecting. 
Yeah, right on. Um, yeah, so key takeaway there is um, let's get our First Nations uh, G to G and, and get them working on behalf of, and certainly, you know, conservation of wild sheep. And that, you know, that's one thing that uh, we recognize is the good work that's being done. We've, you know, we've been very fortunate to work with ONA on that burn in the interior there. And um, so, yeah, a lot of great work being done and hopefully we can rely on them to to make a difference because our government doesn't have the will to do it. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed on that. Um, Steve, um, do you got anything else for John before we wrap it up here? You know, when I was uh, doing a little bit of research into this, I saw some numbers from 2017 and it, it said that there was about 685,000 hectares that needed to be treated in BC. And as you said, about 5,000 per hectare. And the government in 2017 at that time had spent 78 million on fire prevention, like after the fact, like responding. And they need to spend $3 billion to, to bring things where they should be. And the, the, the number that blew my mind was that to date, they had spent $17 billion on earthquake preparedness. So... Huh. Yeah, <laughs> for those that you can't, know, I, those I'm that glad can't you brought that up yeah. to you because <laughs> I just shake my head at this. Is that you know, and this is a I think this is a political thing as well. And yeah, there's a lot of people in Vancouver, but mm -hmm. you know, they're they're spending a lot of money on something they don't know when it's going to happen or if it'll happen. They think it might. They've got the science that say that it might happen. It's been a long time since something like that has happened. We get fires every single year in BC. They are part of our our ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And they rip through towns, they disrupt people's lives, they destroyed a town this year, you know, and, and we, we spend pennies trying, yeah. to, trying to be in preventative action. And yeah. uh, imagine what we could do with $19 billion. Like, exactly. We, we could fix this problem. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, we, we manage our, our fires the way we do our wildlife, right? After the fact when it's too late. So. That's, a good That's a good analogy. Yeah. Right. And, and what, and you know, is that political will? And is that, is that, uh, is that interest? Like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just shocking. It, it, it really so. is. That, that blew my mind. I, I, I was reading going, okay, get some numbers. And it was just like, are you kidding me? That's how much we have spent on that. So anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. You know, and the, the argument for that would be, well, if, if, if there's an earthquake, there's going to be this huge cost of recovery and people would be displaced and stuff. You know, we evacuate people every year mm -hmm. from fires. We, we, we disrupt their lives. We disrupt the economy. We shut down businesses. Like what's the cumulative cost of that? And, mm -hmm. and not only the economic cumulative cost, but what's the mental health cost? Yeah. Right. Like th th those things need to be taken into account. It's, it's not just, you know, what might happen in Vancouver. Yeah. Cause it, Kelowna, what was it? 2003. OMP. Yeah. yeah. It's, there was a lot of people affected there and houses were lost. So yeah, as you say, it's just a matter of time. It really is sadly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right on John. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time. And uh, what I do want to really acknowledge is you're uh, a Monarch gold member with the wild sheep society. BC. you've been a huge supporter of what we do. Um, you know, you're always advocating for um, you know, conservation around wildfire and looking out for wildlife for us. And uh, you've been just a fantastic supporter and just a great resource. And, and you know, we're just honored to have you as as a, a loyal member and just everything that you're con constantly doing for us. So, um, you know, 
just want to thank you from a membership perspective and, and everything you've contributed. And then just from the conservation side of things and, and the hard work you've been doing to, you know, better the habitat for wild sheep. Uh, we just, you're a great friend of the wild sheep society BC and we're very grateful for everything you do. Yeah. Thanks Kyle. It's, it's a, it's a privilege. You know, I've never belonged to the society before. I've, you know, I, I've never, I don't come from a hunting background or a hunting family. I've, I've never been, never been a hunter. Um, I, I was, I was really blown away when I started working and I saw all the effort that was being put out by, by this group, you know, of conservationists and, and the time and effort that's put into, uh, into this type of work is, you know, it, it's, it was easy to join. It was easy to, to support. It was easy to become a member and, and to keep doing so. So I'm very, I'm very uh, honored to be part of the, of the society and, and very proud when I see how much work they're doing out, out in the landscape. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, that's the thing is, uh, you know, a lot of people, we, we kind of get that token, oh, you guys are just hunters, you want to kill them. And we get we get a John Davies that steps up and supports us and the work that you do and somebody that truly cares about wildlife and makes a difference. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. And, you know, when we have members like yourself, it, it's just an honor to say, hey, look at look at what this guy's doing, what he's doing for conservation, what he's doing for wildlife. And uh, yeah, he, does, he doesn't carry a gun. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He's there for the right reasons as far as, you know, other people are concerned. So, yeah. You, you know, you know, Kyle, something that really hit home uh, on one of the conventions I was at was that you have this amazing group of, of people and the membership, you know, and they they might spend a week to 10 days of the year out there trying to, you know, fill their their freezer for their family. But the other 50 weeks, you know, they're putting time and effort into wildlife conservation, you know, and you don't get that from other NGOs that are buying ads in newspapers and social media stuff, right? Like it's the membership that are out in the ground spending, you know, their non two weeks of hunting, uh, making sure there's wildlife for their kids so they can enjoy it with their kids. Like they enjoyed it with their dads, right. And moms. And, and I, I think that's pretty powerful. I, I think that's a message that gets lost or doesn't get relayed. It's, it's a lot of time and effort on people's part. Um, so that, you know, just just conserving so you can go and kill is bullshit yeah absolutely yeah no well said well i i can't thank you enough john uh we've taken enough your friday night and uh, i'm sure your puppy needs a little tlc there too i just want to thank you for taking the time and it's always a play i always enjoy just talking to you john and it just um i could have sat and talked for another two hours about wildfire mm -hmm. so i really enjoyed it and like look forward to i'm sure we're going to see in march in uh, kamloops i'm really looking forward to that so we can have a beer and talk more about it so i'll bring my coin oh <laughs> right on Awesome. <laughs> Who's buying this time? I know. You I don't think the guest. Does the guest have to buy? <laughs> you're you're safe. You're I, safe. I know Kyle never has his on him, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just send the bill to Chris. Works for me. You hear that, Chris? <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really I really enjoy this, and I appreciate the interest. Anytime. All right. Thanks, Thanks again, John. John. Have a great night. Yeah. You cheers.